Hey, thanks for joining us on this week's episode of The Day to Dig. So Greg has the week off and I have the pleasure of chatting with my longtime client and friend, Katie Russell. Katie is data director at OVO, one of the UK's leading energy suppliers. OVO is on a mission to power human progress with clean, affordable energy for everyone, specifically driving progress towards net zero carbon living. Katie and I chat about her career, what it's like to be a female leader in a male-dominated sector, and how we can all raise the profile of women in AI and data science. I hope you enjoy the chat. Ah. Yep. Let's see if I can. Got it. Well. Okay, yeah. I'm just going to start recording. Can you pause it? That's a really good question. Let's do this. I'm Kelly, founder of Gautier Search, a specialist data science and AI search firm. And I'm Greg, former chief data scientist at Channel 4 and co-founder of Memrise. Together, we are excited to present The Data Dig, a new podcast for business leaders, hiring managers, and curious minds. In each episode, we'll dig into, dissect, and debate a new topic within the realm of data science to get informed and make new discoveries together. We might even have a few laughs along the way. Okay, here we go. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Data Dig. We've got a bit of a different approach this week. Greg has the week off, and I have the immense honor of interviewing a longtime client and friend of mine, Katie Russell, on the subject of raising the profile of women in data. Katie and I have worked together on and off since around 2013, so eight years. That feels like a long time. Welcome, Katie. How are you? I'm great, Kelly, and thanks for inviting me. I love doing um, anything that can help raise the profile of women in data. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for making time for us today. So to begin, I wanted to talk about how you got into data science as a career from academia. And I want to talk a little bit about what inspired you. So I read a study recently in the International Journal of STEM Education. And actually, Greg and I, my usual collaborator, talked about this a little bit last week in our last episode about diversity. The article found that women and people from ethnic minority backgrounds are far more likely to enter STEM fields um, of study where they have a role model who reflects their own gender or ethnic background. Um, And you can kind of encapsulate that idea with, you know, the phrase, you cannot be what you cannot see. I heard someone say that the other day, and it really resonated with me. So I wondered whether, you know, as you were going through your time in academia and beyond when you decided to go into this career in the world of data science, was there a female mentor or role model who inspired you to pursue the path that you did? To be honest, back then, no. I mean, even data science wasn't a well-recognized term commercially back then. I was passionate to, to move into um you know, so-called industry versus um, academia, simply because I wanted to work with a lot more people, have a lot more impact. And I'm particularly like happy now that I'm at OVO, which serves a lot of customers. So that decision was more personally driven around the kind of role I wanted. And then in my early roles, I started to carve out a niche um, and see that I could make a difference with the skills I had. But I was always working in really small companies, Kelly. So no, there wasn't within those companies a mentor or a role model that was female. And I can't truly say I was seeing much outside either. To be honest, I may have been a little bit internally focused, focused on what I was doing. I mean, since then, 
I have been like inspired by actually like the people I work with. The, mm. There's some fabulous women at OVO and I I analyse their interactions or talk to them about their motivations and their strengths and I love learning from what how other people do things and then applying that to myself. So that's a whole smorgasbord of, of women I've worked with. Um, yeah. But then there's also been a couple, there's a couple of people that stand out. I met, I don't, I hope she doesn't mind me name dropping her, but um, I bumped into Heather Tewksbury once at a, um, a conference and I was flicking through the catalogue of the Smith Institute and I saw the picture of the CEO and I looked up and it was the woman stood in front of me and I was like, wow, talk to me. <laughs> and she did. What is this, what does the Smith Institute do? Um, I would characterize them as like a mathematics and science consultancy with some like amazing clients and contracts in kind of public and private field. Um, so yeah, she's amazing. And I also love the writings of Cassie Kay. She's chief decision scientist at Google. I love reading her writing. Awesome. Okay. So no shortage of inspiring female counterparts and peers and leaders in your world now, but not so much at the beginning of your career. What was it that gave you the kind of chutzpah and confidence to enter this very male-dominated field of study initially, but then career? <laughs> I had a teacher, actually, that told me, because I was interested in doing both English and maths, or maybe law at uni, and I hadn't quite decided. And my math teacher said to me, Katie Russell, if you do not pursue a career using mathematics, my time as a math teacher has not been worthwhile. And I was like, okay, she's pretty serious. I'll listen to her. <laughs> wow. Mm. Um, and w at, at what age was that? Oh, that would have been, um, so I'm, I was either making A-level, no, I would have been making degree choices, so like 17. And and was, it sounds like she was a woman. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Well, that's interesting. So after completing your PhD, you went on to a company called Takura for nearly four years. Can you tell us a little bit about Takura and what they do? Um. What they do is um, help utilities identify wastage or revenue leakage, you know, you know, due to theft or partial billing, in large commercial properties. Um, and they're like needles in a haystack. These instances, um, and it's not just wasteful and bad for like the wider kind of domestic population that have to, um, due to different mechanisms, end up paying for it. Um, but they're also very, very difficult to find. So it was quite a mathematical problem in many ways to model out the consumption of these commercial properties and then use data to identify um, the ones that had some big problem. My niche was in the data side of things, the backend data modeling. And because I found a niche pretty quickly, I think it, you know, it was a meritocracy. You know, I, it meant I ended up taking on a leadership role and growing a team. Awesome. Okay, so you did your job well. You proved that what you were doing had value. And they thought, well, this woman has to spearhead a team and replicate what she's doing amongst other people in that team and yeah. create some, a value proposition. Yeah, and it worked for the company. So um, clearly you had an impact there in a short amount of time, relatively short amount of time. You were there for four years. Um, so after a successful stint there, you moved on to Onzo an energy analytics company here in London, which is where our relationship began. So tell us a little bit about how, I don't know if I know this story actually, how did the leadership opportunity at Onzo come about and what gave you the confidence to apply for that job? 
Um, about six months prior to me applying for the role, I saw it come up myself, like, I don't know, on LinkedIn or something. I was probably browsing and it popped up and said, you'd be good at this role. But it was a head of role and I was a seniorish manager, but still at a startup um, before. And I saw the head of role and I thought, I would love that. I would love to move into something actually even more mathematical and in this emerging world of data science. And I loved electricity, whereas at Takura we had started to focus a lot more on water. Um, but I didn't have the confidence to apply, so I didn't. And then six months later, a recruiter reached out to me, uh, or I reached out to them because of a different role. I can't remember which way around it was. But either way, they signposted me to this role and said, you should apply. And I was like, okay. Because they, you know, they explained why I would be good for it. And I felt like I had the kind of the backing as well, you know? And so I got it in the end, but it took someone else. It literally took someone else saying you would be a fit. This would work. What do you think stopped you from applying the first time around? I didn't think I ticked enough of the criteria to be completely honest. And I, I since then I've learned, um, was it Harvard Business Review? So some company, I, I should know this, did a study and found that women were X times more likely to not apply for roles if they didn't meet Y number of criteria. But I did exactly the same thing with OVO as well, by the way. A role came up at OVO and I was like, wow, I would love that job. But I didn't think it was, I, I didn't think it was right for me. And then in the end, I did end up not quite getting that role. It was a, a slightly different role. But yeah, it, again, it took a recruiter persuading me that I should apply that I did. Greg and I actually talked about this exact thing last week. That's really interesting. And hopefully like, you know, validating ultimately for you and your career to know that, you know, you don't have to tick all the boxes to be brilliant in a role. And actually, I always say to my candidates, if you tick all the boxes for a job, you shouldn't apply for that job because you're overqualified. There's no learning opportunity there. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I mean, for me, I don't know if it was also the extra six months that made the difference. Maybe I genuinely had got a little bit more experience, but I definitely agree that you shouldn't have to tick all of the boxes. And also, I find that when I personally start interviewing candidates for a role that I've scoped, then that's when I really start to see it take shape in my mind, especially if it's a new role, like a growth role. Um, so I don't think you should be put off by a job specification. You should try and see past it. You should try and see what is it that the company is trying to achieve with this role and what would I bring to it? Not try and tick every box in it. Yeah, how are you going to bring this role to life and excel in it with the skills that you bring to the table, not necessarily trying to, you know, replicate the exact kind of model that they have across their business, but like, how could I, yeah. you know, bring my own kind of flavors and experiences to this particular role? Totally. So what work are you proudest of from your time at Onzo? You were there for three and a bit years, I think. I, I'm certainly proud of bringing together again, like a, a strong team of, you know, data scientists who were, you know, developing algorithms that were doing um, cutting edge things, but then also um, looking to commercialize those. And we, we won several awards um, for what we were doing. So yeah, I think it's that combination of like, finding great data scientists who were really like excited about the problem and wanted to focus on results. And ultimately Onzo, you know, we were looking for product market fit with what our technology was doing. Um, and then, yeah, testing that and seeing how it, um, how it made a difference. Awesome. And how do you think it prepared you for the role that you're in now at OVO? 
I would say for both roles, both Dakura and Onzo, we were so results focused and um, you know quite commercially minded to think about how what we were doing would add value. Um, that that's really helped at Ovo because with Ovo's um, you know background as a, as a challenger, we have to um, be very thoughtful and conscious about what we're doing and, and maximize. Well, I was talking to you about maximizing learning from things we do. So I think both um, startups helped have helped me kind of thrive at Ovo. Great. And for people who don't know, Ovo is an energy company, also a technology company. So talk us through your remit at Ovo, what it involves and how it's kind of grown over the course of your time there. So I head up the data science analytics and data platform capabilities and much of Ovo works in a matrix fashion. So um, data scientists are embedded in cross-functional product teams who are aligned around you know, a specific goal, a specific proposition for a customer or a journey. Um, and the same is true for analysts. So in that sense, my role is very much a, like a community figurehead, um, best practice, technical excellence. Um, but there's also like foundational needs for data at OVO, um, which means that my teams, you know, build out the kind of core data platform and infrastructure um, and create patterns and tools that help um, federate good data management and ownership and discovery through OVO. And then we've got um, a suite of data science products, which, um, well, they're a product in their own right, yeah? So then our other teams are the customers of those products, and they benefit from propensity models that we've built um, or third-party data that we've ingested to get a better understanding of the customer. How much of your role that you're in now was kind of pioneered by you versus something that you inherited from someone who was in the role previously? Um, yeah, data science when I started was one person and it was like an agency function, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. kind of scouting for work internally and not very satisfying. Whereas now we're working in this embedded model within the product teams and it's a much, much better fit. Um, and then from a data platform perspective, that's that's changed massively because we've had to we've we've gone through a massive technology transformation, and so a um, like a single source system data estate with a relational data warehouse just isn't appropriate for what we now have, which is a microservices technology architecture and a lot of use of Kafka and a demand for real-time outcomes for our customers. So we, we've had to massively change the way we're doing data and. My part of it is the um, data platform product management um, and making sure that we're iterating on that data platform and building tools um, that are really of value to the business and kind of help our data strategy. I mean, that's a big job. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of parts to your job. Um, and I can only imagine that there was a big element of advocating and evangelizing for the value of what data science and data generally could do for the business, was that met with open arms by stakeholders and leaders in the business? Were they very glad to hear that you know you were spearheading and pioneering all of this, or was there pushback that you had to work against in order to create change and get some momentum around what data can do for the business? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, by the way, on it being a big job, I have a great team, um, so thanks for all that. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and then with regards to data culture at OVO, um, I mean, you have to get the basics right first. So you have to speak their language and know that you recognize their problems and their pain because, um, you know, with, with, with rates of growth, 
you know, not everything is going to be perfect. So you have to understand what their issues are first before you even, you know, can enter that conversation. And by that, by doing that, you gain trust. And then, yeah, I've really seen this shift towards not just wanting to be data informed, but really wanting to be data driven. And I think I talked to you about how Ovo can move really fast because we break things into small steps. So we very quickly go from being informed by data to wanting to do something about it. Um, and so I think people understand what I'm talking about and, and what we're doing with the real-time data platform. And then with data science in particular, the barrier to entry with that, Kelly, was actually more to be clear about what the difference between a data analyst job was versus someone creating BI reporting versus a data scientist. And so actually I ended up writing a paper about it, which I popped onto our blog, um, because I found I was answering that same question many times. And once that was understood and they started to see some use cases that were adding real value, then it, it, it makes your life much easier. Just do something, prove something in a small way, and then people start to get it when they see the true examples. Fantastic, that makes a lot of sense. So. I want to move on to the kind of nut of the conversation, which we've kind of skirted a few times, but haven't really got down to. How does Ovo, in your opinion, and you don't have to speak for the whole company, but just in your experience, how does Ovo weave diversity empowerment of women into the way it works as a company, do you think? And how do you weave that into the work you do? So we think about belonging more generally, um, that we want to ensure that people at OVO feel feel like they belong and um, the reason for that is it's not entirely altruistic. OVO want people to feel like they belong because we won't succeed unless we do. Like we've got these massive ambitions, I know I keep dropping in the zero carbon thing but that's such a big goal. If we don't have people that feel like they belong and if we don't represent the society we serve we genuinely won't succeed. So it starts with an authentic need and desire, and then it moves to communication, understanding what the current stats are, what the gaps are, and then talking about them openly and honestly in a, in a really bilateral way with our, our people. Um, and we, we track some stats around how people feel like they belong. We use an in, in, engagement management system called PECON to help with that. It's a super powerful tool. And then that then follows up with action. So the action might be um, reviewing benefits, looking at ways of, of working, flexibility, particularly with, with COVID. Um, but yeah, it starts with the authentic need, then the communication and the conversation, and, and then taking the action, and then looping back to measuring again and seeing what's, what's made a difference. So data-driven. Yeah. Amazing. So yeah, you mentioned benefits. I mean, I've been thinking a lot actually lately about the structures which serve to disadvantage women like in their careers and a big part of that is the fact that women have kids and they are typically the ones who take a longer period of maternity leave and so in companies where the maternity benefits aren't progressive or aren't beneficial to women there's inevitably an opportunity or a chance that women are going to fall behind in their careers has ovo got any kind of benefits in place around maternity or paternity leave that helped to kind of prevent that from happening? Yeah, I mean, I can't promise that they prevent it from happening just now, but I would say the conversation is there and happening, especially around um, shared parental leave. It's something that we've had feedback on. Um, and so, I mean, I'm not in the people team, so I can't speak to um, 
authoritatively about precisely how those policies are being transformed, but I do know the conversation's happening. That's awesome. So you're a female leader in data science, right? Mm -hmm. Do you think that your womanhood or the fact that you're female has an impact on the way you go about your job and you're an impact on the ability that you have to lead or is it irrelevant? Do you even think about it? Well, I mean, it's not something I would change anyway. So I don't tend to dwell too much on things I'm not going to change. Like I am a leader in data science, tick, and I am a woman. And I, I more think about me, like what is it about me, my style, my personality and my experience that impacts the way I go about my job and how can I improve it? Um, and there could be some stereotypes where perhaps I index higher on the empathy scale um, and perhaps I need to recognise that as a strength than I have. I've worked to recognise that as a strength rather than a weakness. And, and perhaps women more generally would find, more, find it more challenging because there's not necessarily the recognition that these leadership qualities they may feel they are more likely to be strong in are recognised as leadership qualities. But... Every, literally everyone is different as well. So I think you have to focus on the individual and, you know, what works for you. And actually at OVO, I've been helping the, I have been helping the people team with a, a kind of reconsideration of what the leadership qualities are and how they fit our values. And we've come out with something that I think is really inclusive around, um, you know, skills in connecting people, skills in empathy, as well as skills in driving and, and, and pioneering. So that's been a good thing to be part of. Cool. So, you know, characteristics, leadership characteristics that might help to level the playing fields hmm. a little bit, it sounds like. Yeah. Do you think that your leadership style has evolved over the years? And if so, how do you run your teams differently now than you did eight years ago, 10 years ago? It's definitely evolved. I mean, I'm you know a lot more about collaboration than necessarily consensus, because with larger teams, you just you cannot necessarily get consensus and nor should you. Um, there are some things which are still the same, which is a lot of um, a lot of listening and a high degree of, of care. I hope um, I've personally got better at um, delegation and supporting a lot of autonomy um, because I, I've, I've got great people. I've built great teams, and so I can just trust them to run, and I'm there to support or count, coach, sorry, or counsel. So yeah, it's changed a lot. I guess that makes sense. You've been doing it a while. So I'm sure you've uh, you've adapted and learned over the years. When I interviewed you back in 2015 for that Lady Data Gurus article, you said you didn't feel like there were any specific or particular barriers that had prevented you from ascending to your leadership roles that you held in this space. Six years on, do you still think that's true? Wow. No, it can't be true. If it was true, then there wouldn't be the gender pay gaps that we have across so many different sectors and industries. Yeah, it's not true. That was just because I was in startups where I was adding value and I was able to progress. I was lucky. Yeah, lucky, but also, you know, you'd you'd worked in in smaller environments where the impact you were having was visible. I think Onzo was like 30 people or 40 people at its biggest. So it's much easier to see the impact that every contributor is making in that sort of environment, right? Yeah. So I have been able to continue to progress at OVO and I, I've been very grateful to almost like internal sponsors. Like I, I think there's this concept of a ladder, right? And there's people above you. And I know that people use the metaphor of women reaching down to pull people up the ladder, but men can do it too. 
and that's what I found over it really happens like men have looked down they've seen me they've helped pull me up they've moved over on the ladder um, and that's how I've progressed but but what I do hear a lot and this is a question for you is people who feel like they are only progressing and getting promoted if they move jobs or if they get into a counter offer situation so I was wondering what you think about that does it does that impact women more than men and what should we do to improve it that's a really good question. So I think you have to look at it from both perspectives. You have to look at it from the employer's perspective and you have to look at it from the employee's perspective. So I think from an employer's perspective, you don't want your employees to feel that way, right? You want your employees to feel like they can excel in their role and be rewarded for that, you know, without having to go, you know, further afield or look elsewhere. So my advice to employers is to always have progression and promotion opportunities baked into the job wherever possible to eliminate mystery. You know, don't make it anything but crystal clear as to how an employee will progress in their role. And that obviously involves uh, collaboration if it's a large company to have those structures and milestones in place. But an employee should know what milestones they need to hit to be promoted and be working with their line manager to achieve them. And there should be a structure, a timeline, and a process in place, you know, and, and I'm sure that a lot of most great companies have that. But if there isn't, then you leave more room for ambiguity, for tension and frustration, you know, at, at a very basic level, keep the lines of communication open at all times to make it easier for employees who are less likely to advocate for themselves to seek out a promotion opportunity. And, and in a lot of cases, that means women, um, you know, who are less likely to drop a meeting into their boss's diary unannounced and then, you know, sit across from them at, at a table and say, I want to raise, mm -hmm. you know, women are far less likely to do that statistics have demonstrated. So you need to make it less confrontational for your uh, subordinates to ask why, for example, a promotion hasn't happened when they're doing their job properly, you know, if those structures and kind of milestones aren't already in place. I think that as long as those lines of communications are open and also things are set out in a way that's structured so that there are no surprises means that employees aren't going to feel like you know, they, they don't have a voice and, you know, they don't need to go elsewhere to get those sort of progression opportunities. From the employee side, there needs to be some way to have a proactive and open conversation with your line manager first before, uh, you know, trying to go elsewhere. And that can be hard um, if you don't feel like you have a great relationship with your boss. Um, so maybe it's a case of, you know, using a mentor in your company, someone you trust as an advocate for you, going to HR or your people team. Definitely try to exhaust all internal channels before undertaking a job search to get a promotion or raise because it's a lot of work um, to go through all of that when you might have something, you know, an opportunity available to you internally. Katie, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I could pick your brain about this for for hours and hours, but I feel like you've really shed some great light on how you've gotten to where you are in your career and what makes you great at your job. So I really appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and yeah, thanks again. Oh, thank you for having me. And I hope it is helpful for your audience as well. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Kelly. We hope you enjoyed our chat today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure to leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. 
As always, we'd like to say a very special thanks to Misha Frankel Duval for producing our podcast and bringing today's episode to life. Join us again in two weeks' time when we dig into, dissect, and debate a different area of the ever-changing data science landscape. Bye for now.